From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Political neutrality, not with Timothy Shea. This is The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I'm the first to admit that I'm no good at reading tea leaves. Whenever I make predictions, they generally don't come true. Sometimes they do. But if it's a prediction, generally it doesn't. But I am good at seeing around corners. And the reason I'm good at seeing around corners is that things need to make sense to me. And something about Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign has never made sense to me. Vivek's not a stupid man. And it mystified me as to why he'd be throwing his hat in the ring to run against Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is clearly not only the front runner, but the designee in waiting, right? He, he's the nominee. Uh, we've got to go through the primaries, but barring some event that would be truly tragic, and I'm not talking about the court cases, Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee next year. So why would Vivek spend all as much money as he's spending, his own and his friends, and knowing that he's not going to be the Republican nominee for president. So maybe it's because he thinks there's a chance that one of these legal cases against Trump will stick. They won't. Or something worse would happen, which we're still praying that it doesn't. And then I thought, well, maybe he's just running for a cabinet position because he's not really a known quantity in politics. And this is a chance for him to show what he could do as a cabinet secretary, because I do believe that one of President Trump's main objectives in a second term is going to be dismantling his own administration, dismantling the executive departments that have grown too big, have gotten too rapacious, and are too out of control. And in order to do that, he's going to need rock solid cabinet secretaries that are going to run herd on their own departments. But last night, an idea occurred to me. What if Vivek's mission in running for the Republican nomination, his mission in participating in these debates, which started out as Vivek and the Seven Dwarves, that's what I initially dubbed the gang of eight that was up there. It's now Vivek and the Three Stooges, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, and, and who's the other one? Oh, yeah, Ron Disappoints Us. Ron, I noticed you grew several inches from the first debate to last night. I guess those four-inch lifts in your cowboy boots are really working because you're as tall as Vivek now. And I thought that, okay, so Vivek's still in it. And last night, he gave me an idea of why he might be there. Let's see if you come up with the same idea. Here's what he said. Why am I the only person on this stage, at least, to say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job, that the government lied to us for 20 years about Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11, that the Great Replacement Theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democrat Party's platform, and that 20, the 2020 election was indeed stolen by big tech? Did you get the same feeling I got hearing that? What if Vivek is running? to give voice to all the never Trumpers out in the audience. Cause let's face it, Trump nation is not watching these debates. I didn't watch it. <laughs> I watch clips after the fact that people send me, somebody asked me, what do you think is going to happen in tonight's debate? And I literally responded, there's a debate tonight. And I wasn't being snarky. I didn't know that there was a debate last night. They're completely off my radar. It's like professional sports. 
I, I don't even know what's going on. I didn't even know who, that the World Series had started, much less who was in it this year. And for people who know me, they know how shocking that is because I was always a huge baseball fan, even if my once beloved New York Yankees weren't in the World Series. I still watched faithfully because I loved baseball. So I didn't know there was a debate last night. So what if Vivek's entire raison d'etre in this campaign is to articulate to the never-Trumper audience Trump's talking points? We know that the media normalizes things by getting them out there over and over and over again. They started normalizing transsexualism and transvestism back in the 1960s with Lou Reed's Take a Walk on the Wild Side and the Kinks' Lola with Rocky Horror Picture Show, with Mrs. Doubtfire, with a whole host of gender-bending media properties. What if Vivek is doing that on the opposite side of the fence? What if he's getting these talking points out on the major media, in some cases, on Newsmax, on Fox, to the audience that won't tune into Trump and really wants someone other than Trump to be president? What if Vivek is articulating the president's main platform planks? Something to think about. I don't know if I'm correct, but it's definitely something worth considering. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all the major social platforms, including Facebook, X, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Conversations to inform and include. It's meant for everyday people to understand. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. With another great article tonight, we have our very own ruckus, Adam Clark. Welcome, Ruckus. Howdy, Timothy. Um, so uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, we've got the liberal media suddenly promoting carbon passports as a way to restrict travel in the name of fighting anthropogenic climate change. Um, I think we kind of saw this coming now, didn't we? Um, in fact, if you were paying attention during the pandemic, you probably noticed that there were numerous Western nations who introduced or considered introducing vaccine passports, supposedly secure digital immunity certifications required for travel and admission to various events, businesses and facilities. Critics warned that besides invading citizens privacy, trampling their mobility rights and serving to maximize the number of veins opened to profitable vaccines, there would also be function creep with the medical passports. That's right. Was not any stretch of the imagination to realize, hey, if they could do this in the name of fighting a public health emergency, maybe they might consider doing something similar to tackle the looming climate crisis. And sure enough, sure enough, here we are years later, uh, although it was only supposed to be a couple weeks. Uh, there now appears to be a concerted effort underway with predictions and excuses to prime Westerners for carbon passports. CNN, for instance, recently recycled an article from The Conversation titled, quote, it's time to limit how often we can travel abroad. 
quote unquote, carbon passports may be the answer. Nice headline. The article penned by a pronoun providing pronoun providing um, PhD candidate at Leeds Beckett University begins with criticism of the tourism industry's apparent return to normal in the wake of the pandemic, <gasps> suggesting that, quote, there's concern that a return to the status quo is already showing dire environmental and social consequences, end quote. Despite evidence that human error and arson are often to blame, the article cited recent wildfires as evidence that climate change is a growing problem, then suggested tourism is partly to blame. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, 29% of greenhouse gas emissions in 2021 came from transportation, including planes, trains, and automobiles. The year prior to the pandemic, the figure was 33%. The article highlights a possible remedy detailed in a 2023 report from Intrepid, that's a travel, a travel company that claims to be ethical. The report, which has been taken up by various travel zines, zines, magazines, online websites and whatnot, it claims that a, quote, personal carbon emissions limit will become the new normal as policy and people's values drive an era of great change, end quote. Ah, we've moved on from the Great Reset to the Great Change. Martin Raymond, co-founder of the Future Laboratory, a consultancy outfit, said, quote, on our current trajectory, we can expect a pushback against the frequency with which individuals can travel with carbon passports set to change the tourism landscape, end quote. The report claims that unnamed experts, of course, Quote, suggests that individuals should currently limit their carbon emissions to 2.3 tons each year, the equivalent of the equivalent, excuse me, of taking a round trip from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. However, the average carbon footprint in the U.S. is 16 tons per person per year, end quote. As a point of comparison, Biden's climate czar, John Kerry's flights around the world promoting a green future reportedly generated 9.5 million pounds, or that's 4,329 tons of carbon. And that's just between March of 2001 and July of 2002. A personal carbon emissions limit would apparently ensure that those without the blessing of the government or the ability to pay off a substantial fine would be prohibited from travel deemed excessive or unnecessary. Yeah, but who makes that determination is the big question. Uh, quote, by 2040, it will be unusual to see members of Generation Alpha without a carbon footprint tracker on their smartphones. Every Uber ride, plane journey, and trip to the supermarket will be logged in their devices, noting their carbon footprint in real time, end quote. That's according to the report. Boy, that sounds like a future I don't necessarily want to be a part of, Timothy. How about you? Adam, I'm shocked. Shocked. How dare you call out John Kerry's hypocrisy? How dare you call out the fact that he's 300 times over the limit? Three, no, not 300 times, 3,000 times over the limit. And the last paragraph is the most important paragraph, right? Because how is the average person supposed to know that he's limiting his 
travel to 2.3 metric tons of carbon dioxide. Of course, they have to have tracking and control. Everything is about control. The VAX passport's about control. The carbon credit passport's about control. But don't worry, Adam. It's for the common good. Or is it for the greater good? I get confused about these things sometimes. Oh, the greater good. I forgot we changed. That's right. That's right. We changed the terminology. It's for the greater good, Adam. Yeah, greater good for them. How come come John Kerry's travel is never going to be deemed excessive? How come none of the Instagram influencers travel? You know, I don't think Kim Kardashian's travel is ever going to be deemed excessive. No, exactly. Uh, As the the reports point out here, that these are certainly... Another fine example of rules for thee, but not for we, uh, Timothy. Um, don't mean to rhyme too much there, but yeah, that's exactly what no, this I is. No, I love the rhyming. I, mean, I love alliteration. But I have a friend who's in the travel industry. He's an executive in the travel industry. And yet still he he knows Biden isn't great, but he still can't see the wisdom of Trump's economic policies. And these are going to hit home in a big way, I think. People need to wake up as to the kind of future these miscreants want to create for us. These are the dweebs that couldn't get a date in high school and and couldn't find anybody on match.com. So they went into government and they're playing like they're playing with dolls. They're playing with people's lives. Like they're playing with dolls and it's just, it's sick and they need to be stopped. Yeah. And also um, for all of you folks out there who were called crazy conspiracy theorists when you were talking about this a year or two ago or maybe even three years ago saying, hey, listen, you know, if we let them get away with this, they're going to do it again in the name of, oh, I don't know, say climate change. And maybe you you posted a meme of Indiana Jones switching out the coronavirus with the with the climate change logo. Yeah. Raise your hand if you shared that meme. Yeah, that would be me. Um, Yeah, this is. Yeah. Uh, you might have even lost your Facebook for talking about stuff like this, right? I think Timothy? I did get a 30-day ban on that one, actually. Yeah, I'm not joking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now we know why, because they just didn't want the people to know the truth before it was too late. Because like that one art the one article from the Intrepid was talking about putting this stuff into place by 2040. Uh, but that conserv the the article from the conversation that was recycled by CNN uh was uh appears pretty more hopeful that it's happening quickly they said that quote our travel habits may already be on the verge of change end quote i'm not exactly sure what that means oh wait that's right um because recently out in europe there's been a bunch of initiatives including the move to axe short haul right. flights and impose taxes which would dissuade the the normal the plebes you can't afford to fly sorry about that you don't get to fly you know we'll just price you out and that's exactly what they're going to do. Commercial aviation will dwindle, but I don't think mysteriously it's going to affect private travel, Adam. Thanks for a chilling story. You're listening to The Reckoning on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. 13 Israeli hostages released uh, as part of that ceasefire deal uh, 49 days after they were taken hostage. 
49 days. So that still leaves about 225 to 227 more hostages. Uh, I'm with John Bolton, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump. I'm with Britt Hume of, uh, of Fox News. I'm with a bunch of other people who say this gives Hamas too much time to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever they need to do, to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize. And as much as you want the hostages back, it can't be at the expense of the other part of the mission, which is to destroy Hamas. So I think it's a mistake. Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. I'm just going to do a little voice. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. We don't rock. rock. We talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. John O'Connor is an experienced trial attorney practicing law in San Francisco since 1972. He served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California from 1974 to 79, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases. Among his interesting assignments have been representation of the government during the OPEC oil embargo of the 70s, representing California Attorney General Dan Lundgren in campaign-related litigation, and representing W. Mark Felt regarding the revelation of his identity as Deep Throat. I'd like to welcome to The Reckoning, John O'Connor, Esquire. Good to be with you, Tim. John, I was the little Alex P. Keaton racing off the school bus to watch the Senate Watergate hearings with Sam Irvin, and I followed the story intensely. And admittedly, I was uh, only a 12-year-old boy, but it never made sense to me is how something like this could have happened. As I said in my opening tonight, I'm not always great at prognostications or predicting things, but I, I can't see around corners. And the tool I use is that things have to make sense to me. That's the way I look at the world. And if they don't make sense to me, my spidey sense goes off. And I think that something might be amiss. Well, something was certainly amiss with the entire Watergate narrative, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And the Washington Post and people like John Dean are still trying to explain it today. 
on the 50-year anniversary, they explained this silly, this thing, which made no sense. There had not yet been a Democratic nominee. Nixon was ahead by 20 points in the polls, that this never made any sense. And so Woodward has tried, Bob Woodward of the Post has tried to put this down to some e excessive and irrational uh, concern by Nixon about getting reelected. Whereas what's silly about it is everyone agrees that Nixon didn't know about this burglary. Right. It's also admitted now by the Washington Post that the attorney general, John Mitchell, who then became the head of the campaign, did not order this. They admit that now, 50 years after the fact, after saying he was involved for 49 years. They now say that. And so that doesn't make sense. And then they say, well, what difference does it make all the witnesses are dead? What difference does it make who ordered it? Well, it makes a lot of difference because if this were not really a Nixon campaign operation, then what was it? But more importantly, if it's not a Nixon campaign operation, why would he be impeached and removed? And the answer is he shouldn't have been. Uh, so uh, that's what's so troubling about this that, and I'll give you one more thing, Tim, the Post knew far more about what happened than the White House ever did, and they did not tell the public what they knew. Well, they knew because their quote-unquote reporter, Bob Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein fame, was no reporter. He was a naval, naval intelligence officer who all of a sudden mysteriously landed at the Post, and really the first big story he ever worked on was this Watergate burglary. That's right. But I got to say, he was legitimately trying to be a reporter. He had been on the local crime beat for about a year. But your point is well taken. Uh, his success as a local crime reporter came because he had a re relationship with my client, Mark Felt. And Mark Felt right. helped him with some local uh, stories like the attempted assassination of uh, George um, Wallace, uh, which happened to be in Maryland. So Woodward caught a break there. Now he's on the regular post staff and uh he's still doing local crime and it so happens that uh, the watergate burglary is a local crime but that said uh what's intriguing about it is is that the post had a monopoly on the story they knew exactly what happened but because they had a monopoly and because the fbi was not publicizing what it did and in fact never gave the senate its file when they were impeaching uh nixon uh, and having these hearings. So the only source of information they had was the Post, and the Post wasn't telling everybody the full story. Yeah, they say the power of the press is he who owns the press has the power, right? And this is exhibit A in that uh, for that proposition. G. Gordon Liddy spoke, gave a lecture at my college back in the early 80s. And we walked out, and I said, Morality aside, because he's amoral, okay, he's outside of the moral framework. I said, you have to admire G. Gordon Liddy, because at least he articulated what his principles were, and he stuck to them, to the point of saying, <laughs> I think freaking out John Dean, just tell me what street corner to be on. I don't want people bursting in while I'm having breakfast with my family in the kitchen. Just tell me what street corner to be on and when, and I'll be there. And I think that kind of shocked Dean, but that's the mindset 
of, of Liddy, CIA man, military man. And this really was a CIA operation, wasn't it? It had nothing to do with the committee to reelect the president. Well, absolutely. And you just pointed out something and Liddy agreed to be shot. But Liddy, of all people, he was the only dupe in the affair. He thought yeah. that, that this was a campaign operation. He's the only people that, person who thought that because he was told by Dean, among other people, mm -hmm. and, and Jeb Magruder to go in. And he, and he protested. They went in twice. He protested because he says this makes no sense as a campaign operation. Now, and let's, I, I want to underscore guy. the I, I want to underscore that point because you made that point before, too. For people who aren't of our vintage and don't realize this, Richard Nixon to this day remains the most popular president in United States history. He was elected with a greater percentage of the popular vote than any president before in any president since. He was wildly popular. There was absolutely no reason for this break in. That's right. And he had uh, overwhelmingly won the election, carrying 49 states. Now, yeah. did he have a funny persona? Did Was there a fair amount of the population that thought he was an odd duck and was sort of a, a slick, a tricky dick guy who, who, who was never comfortable in public? He was not like Bill Clinton, who was just a charming guy. Uh, Nixon was the opposite. He really preferred to be in public and, or in private, and he didn't do well uh, glad-handing. But he was very popular because he had done such a good job. He, he expanded his base over four years he was in office. So that's what's a shame about it is he was really railroaded on this thing. And what's a further shame is that no one knows this today. Now, Gordon Liddy, by the way, became uh, a true believer that this was not what it, it was supposed to be. He later on, after looking at everything, realized he was a dupe, and he said so, and even got right. sued by John. He got sued by John Dean for saying it, and of course, he won that trial, and then the Post did an editorial that juries are really uh, unreliable. How could they possibly yeah, find that? <laughs> yeah, juries yeah. can. You, you, juries are always unreliable if they come to a result with which the Washington Post disagrees. You're listening to The Reckoning on TNT Radio. Big news? We do have some big news. TNT Radio News. Big For TNT news. Radio News, this is James O'Neill. The House GOP released on December 7th the text of a resolution to formalize the House impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. Chinese firms have been targeted for the first time in the UK's fresh round of sanctions aimed at military suppliers that are propping up Russia's war machine. Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney's government in Rome has officially informed Beijing that Italy is withdrawing from the Communist Party government's Belt and Road Global Domination Scheme. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. John, we said that President Nixon was wildly popular and had no need to do this, this Watergate break-in as a campaign uh, tactic. Remind people of what the break-in was intended to to achieve? What, what was the intended objective ostensibly? Why did they break into the, the Democrat National Committee office? Well, the first break in, they installed a wiretapping device in a phone. Uh, and they were monitoring the phone for two weeks. Um, 
a fellow named James McCord, who worked for the committee to reelect the president, curated the tape. He would he refused to have the calls recorded and fooled Gordon Liddy about it. He didn't record the calls, which is was odd. And then he was the one who decided what Liddy got in terms of written notes about the conversations. And to the White House, this seemed like a stupid thing. There was nothing of value. Um, Liddy thought they were supposed to be wiretapping a guy named Lawrence O'Brien, who headed the DNC. Right. And gee, he was told, gee, the microphone doesn't work that was in O'Brien's office, but we we tapped another phone as well. So what 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 was the truth was that the CIA wanted to tap the other phone. They never tried to tap O'Brien. They lied to Liddy. They were only tapping a phone of a fellow whose office was normally vacant. And when out-of-town visitors came to the DNC, they used the phone. And one of the things they used the phone for was to, at the direction of the particular secretary there, uh, to, uh, say, converse about the evening's activities with naughty girls down the street. If someone was looking for fun out of town, the committee man from Montana, and this was the part of the DNC that re received state chairmen from around the country, that person who wanted a little fun at night would then have a conversation on this phone in which they would discuss the evening's activities. Uh, th that was what the CIA wanted. Why did the CIA want this? The CIA had infiltrated the White House and the committee to reelect the president. They wanted this because it had the tincture of presidential approval. It was approved by John Dean of the White House. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they could say, gee, this has got the approval of the commander in chief. Under the Constitution, it makes an illegal search legal if the president authorizes it because it's uh, ostensibly could be for national security. The president which gave rise, which gave rise to Nixon's statement that if the president does it, it's not, it's by definition not illegal. Well, that's correct, and of course, as long as you do it for national security purposes, right, right, uh, and that's the whole idea of the FISA Act. All the FISA uh, searches that we've been reading about in RussiaGate are all legal only because there's a link to national security. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves which was illegal and unconstitutional unless freeing the slaves was done for national security purposes. Very few people realize that when Lincoln freed the slaves, he did not free them in the four border states where slave, where, which had not joined the Confederate cause. So four right. states had slaves that were not freed. That's an example of the line between legal uh, and illegal and constitutional, unconstitutional, it was okay to free the slaves, even though otherwise illegal and unconstitutional because of the national security powers. So, Which actually is why we thing. had to pass the 13th Amendment. Right. So then what we have is now we have the CIA for years doing these illegal um, wiretappings and recordings of prostitutes and their johns they claim for mind control research, but common sense tells you it's for extortion purposes, and they're sure. building up their extortion files to get people to turn and so forth and so on. Well, they needed so, to keep up with J. Edgar Hoover over at FBI. Actually, one of their problems was is that Hoover was no longer helping the CIA. Uh, right. And so, and it would be legal, but incidentally, it's legal if Hoover did it. 
If Hoover right. did it, Hoover had the power to do these national security searches. The CIA was forbidden from doing them in the in the domestic realm in the United States. So now that the FBI had abandoned them after the Henry Kissinger wiretaps, that was the last thing that the FBI did of an extra constitutional nature, which was legal, by the way. The FBI said, Hoover said, I don't want my uh, tail end burned on this. I'm getting out of this business. So that's why they infiltrated the White House. Then if they could infiltrate the White House and get the uh, approval of, say, any White House person, they could claim their otherwise illegal campaign of program, I should say, of, of um, taping prostitutes in their johns. That makes it legal. So later on, 10 years later, when they get caught by Congress, what are you doing taping all these prostitutes in their john? They can say, well, we had authority from the president. Look at this. We have the funding from G. Gordon Liddy, who wrote us a check and who did this and that and the other. They like the idea of documenting that the White House had authorized this, uh, even though it was from very low-level people. Uh, so that was their goal, was to legitimize what otherwise would be illegitimate actions that could cause the CIA to lose their pensions and get in a whole heap of trouble. So now let's take this up C to 30,000 feet. Let's talk about why this whole episode might have been orchestrated. There was a Republican congressman from Michigan that was on the Warren Commission, Gerald R. Ford. And Richard Nixon said to Richard Holmes, the CIA director, I know you killed Jack. Or I know who killed Jack. My thesis is that Nixon was a non-bloody assassination, that it was another presidential assassination because they went after Spiro Agnew and got him to resign. And who did Nixon appoint? Gerald Ford. And then who became the only unelected president in American history? Gerald Ford. It looks like this whole operation was designed to take down Richard Nixon and install Gerald Ford. Am I off base on that? A little bit, a little bit. Let me tell you, the CIA didn't mean to get caught in this. If they hadn't have been caught, this thing would have been nothing. The CIA didn't want to go in a second time, by the way. And it, they would have had, they had everything they needed locked down for posterity. Now, where Agnew comes into this is now that Nixon is in trouble. And by the way, my father's partner, William Ruckel's house, was involved mm -hmm. in this quite heavily. And he yes. was talking to my father at the time. And saying basically, uh, no one can impeach. He had already appointed Archibald Cox, along with uh, Elliot Richardson, had appointed Archibald Cox. We have to get rid of Agnew before Nixon can become a, impeached, because we know that Agnew's been taking bags of cash, even while vice president for uh, corrupt dealings from uh, uh, Maryland. Uh, so, so really, what it was was they needed to get rid of. Um, of uh, what's his name of Agnew first. Now, Ford, I think Nixon, one of the reasons he, uh, Ford was appointed, he, 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 first of all, he's the Speaker of the House. You could say he was in line to be the president mm -hmm. uh, and you got rid of the vice president. So maybe he's next in line anyway. But he, it's certainly a convenient guy to have on your side when um, 
the issue of impeachment and removal might come up. Um, you know, that's one of the things that could happen. And it, it just doesn't hurt to have a guy like Ford. I think they cut a deal, uh, maybe not directly with Nixon, but before he was appointed, I think it was pretty clear Ford was going to pardon him. But I think the real issue here is that the Post had him on the ropes by concealing the truth from the public. And now all of a sudden you have this paper, which is by the way, the democratic paper of record, there was no doubt of mm -hmm. their partisanship. They realized that the power of the White House to hurt them was limited. The Post, the, the when, when there was a clash between the White House and the Post, the Post won because they had the bully pul pulpit of the media. Now the Post realizes, as does every other reporter in the country, that journalists have political power far beyond what they thought they had. But it can't be the political power of saying, oh, somebody's a bad president. Okay, big deal. But if you can use your, your bully pulpit as a media outlet, you can get rid of your political enemies. So when well, you let's expand on that Donald point Trump after the let's expand on that point after the break. You're listening to the reckoning on TNT Radio. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, of course, the biggest story in climate right now is Vice President Kamala Harris leaves for the climate conference with the biggest carbon footprint in history. She's heading to Abu Dhabi or whatever for COP28 in Joe's place with hosts under fire for wanting to push oil and gas deals. Do you know why there's so many people there? Because they realize what a scam this is and they're trying to push oil and gas deals. Anyway, she left and there's 400,000 people expected there. Now, do you really believe that there's 400,000 people are all interested in eliminating fossil fuels? I would say there are quite a few of them, given Abu Dhabi is in the Middle East and there's a lot of oil in the Middle East, that are seeking to do business because they know what a scam this is. And let's see, at its head, Sultan Al-Jabbar has denied reports he's using meetings at the summit to make side deals on fossil fuels produced by the United Arab Emirates. I'm sure he's smart enough to probably be doing that. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather, even if we can't go over to Abu Dhabi, because it's the only weather you got. We all know what it's like to feel alone, but it just takes one new connection. Want to get out of here? To empower many. This is unbelievable. It doesn't take a superhero to bring forces together. We all have the power to reach out. Let's go! And help someone feel like they belong. Pretty cool, huh? We are stronger together. This is The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. So, John, as you say, Washington Post and reporters everywhere now realize just how much political power they actually have to take down their political enemies. That really was the turning point in having a media that routinely lied to the American public, either by omission or overtly, to, to having a, a media that really looked to weaponize itself, weaponize communications with the American public, resulting in the landscape we have today. Right. 
Well, I'll give you two examples. The power to hype is also the power to conceal. Now, they concealed a lot that uh, ended up uh, sinking Nixon because they concealed exculpatory evidence, which you can't do in a prosecution, but a, a journalist can do it. Now, let's go to the present. Uh, by the way, when Jimmy Carter was in office, he made a sweetheart deal with the Justice Department to get his brother off. And the Post was very silent and, and as a matter of fact, praising that they mm -hmm. let J Billy Carter off, even though he had clearly committed a uh, uh, he had lied to the FBI and he been, was a foreign agent for our worst terrorist enemy, uh, Muammar Gaddafi. But let me go forward, if I can, Tim, to 2016, as Trump is about to take office at a leading journalist grad school. The dean who was in contact with other deans of other grad schools in journalism and other schools of journalism told one of his students, a couple of his students, in fact, don't worry about Trump. We're going to Watergate. Now, what they mean by that is it had become a standard trope that you try to get someone going. James Comey knew how to do this. He did it with Martha Stewart. He did it with Scooter Libby. What you do mm -hmm. is you start an investigation, and then you hope somebody obstructs it, which they almost always will do in some form or fashion. And if you want to find obstruction, you can find it. Uh, that's any endeavor to hide or, or uh, evidence or to, to influence evidence. So you can be very technical. So what happened was, you start out with this Russian investigation, which was fabricated out of whole cloth. And then the hope was that Trump, they knew that he wasn't guilty of any Russian collusion, but they were hoping, like President Nixon, he would technically obstruct justice in some way. So you can read the Mueller report and you get this feeling of frustration from the staff that, boy, we almost got him to obstruct in 12 different ways. We didn't quite do it, but boy, well, any lawyer will tell you that almost obstructing is a feature of everyday life. Every client who says, sure. gee, do I have to give this document over? You could call that obstruction or attempted obstruction, endeavoring to obstruct. And the lawyer says, that's a conspiracy to obstruct. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so guys like Comey, uh, weaving spiders, along with the journalist friends, know that they can get rid of somebody by, quote, watergating him. And so they tried to watergate Trump a couple times. It almost worked. They got him impeached a couple times. Uh, and they had the Russian investigation as well, which what didn't result in impeachment. But so what this has become. Well, is, that was after they tried to bork him, right? Well, no, that's right. That's right. So what they did was, you know, with the, P, the Russian is, P tape, which never existed. Exactly. And all Watergate did was give a template to journalists to use and to say that the uh, end justifies the means. And uh, plainly, it's admitted in the New York Times and other places that Trump is such a terrible Hitlerian person that anything goes to get rid of him because it's in the service of the higher good. So this is a good example. And when they do Watergate, uh, retrospectives 50 years later, uh, guess when they're talking about Nixon, then they'll have a, 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 a cut to Trump. Oh, we know that Trump's as bad as Nixon. Right. And that's the whole concept here. And if you get people thinking along those lines, and then you also have a majority in, in, in uh, 
one thing, one of the reasons you're doing this is to get a majority in the in Congress. But if you have a majority in the Congress, and then you can impeach somebody. So that's the whole idea here. Or convict them, as we're doing now. Think about this. You now have four indictments of President Trump. Right. I think it did something else, too, though. Journalists were typically the ink-stained wretches, right? You had the H.L. Mencken muckrakers, and you had reporters that were genuinely news hounds, and they were they were out for stories, and they were out to expose the uh, malefactors, whoever they might be, whether powerful or criminal, and sometimes both, and uplift the common man, right? You, that was sort of journalism back before Watergate. But with Watergate and with the deification of Woodward and Bernstein, all of a sudden the J schools, the journalism schools like Columbia and elsewhere around the country were flooded with students that were looking to come out and get a job and be a Woodward or a Bernstein to go and get their scalps to hang on the wall. It, it, it sort of it was a sea change for the entire uh, profession of journalism. All right. And I would put two points on that. Number one, the surveys of people going to journalism school at the time said students went to journalism school to, quote, change the world, unquote. If you're going to change the world, it's obviously not going to be conservative, number one. And you're going to try to do something, then you're on a team. And if you're on a team and you want to change the world one way, you can't go the other way. The other thing that Watergate taught journalism schools, and they teach it in their in their classes, is to come up with a narrative theme. Oh, the narrative theme is so important. Build your narrative. Build your narrative. Well, lawyers build narratives all the time. And when lawyers build narratives, they want facts that fit their narrative. Now, lawyers, though, have opponents. Lawyers have opponents who keep them straight. If you're a lawyer going into court alone and you have a narrative you want to sell to a jury and you don't have any opposition, are you going to tell the jury everything? Are you going to tell it the right way? No, of course you're not. That's human. Well, that's nature. why indictments are so easy to get because the witness isn't allowed, the defendant, the target isn't allowed to defend himself and not have any representation there. There's no objectives. It's just the state telling its side of the story. That's why we have expressions like it, you can indict a ham sandwich exactly it. And so what happens is this becomes the norm. You build up a you build up a narrative and all facts must fit in that narrative. Once the jury is sold on the narrative, anything that doesn't fit with it is explained away. And also because of the whole idea, uh the the main media has is very very leftist in thinking. Uh and the media, the journalists have very little real world experience and they don't understand how to think critically. So when you think, then you go to the point that the Post then says, we're writing the first draft of history. Well, I right. don't think H.L. Mencken would say they're writing history, but uh, now what's happened is Watergate has become history based on the journalism and it's false history. I wrote a book, Postgate, that completely demolishes the Post's um, a story. But, you know, if uh, if my book falls in the forest and nobody's there to, to read it, so what? So maybe a few thousand people who bought the book know the real story, but that's it. So what are you going to do? The Post has done it and they have written history and it's false history. And that's a further problem. 
I actually wanted to talk a little bit about your book, Postgate. You know, maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist. I don't think so. I don't think I'm a Pollyanna, uh, a Candide. You know, this is for the best and the best of all possible worlds. But I firmly believe that eventually the truth will out. Eventually it's going to come out. And it's been 50 years, but the truth is coming out. And your book is a big part of that. It, it, it is coming out. It's there for people to see. It's the facts are plain. Gordon Liddy, by the way, believes what I believe um, and, and got sued for it. But the real question is, is there's so much noise out there. It's almost like we're flooded so much today. It's hard for the truth to rise as it may have, if if I had written this book in 1972, or maybe let's say 74, there wasn't enough noise out there as you see in the internet today. So it's harder to get uh, the real story out there. Um, there are very few people who understand the last four years of the Vietnam War and how effective Maxwell Taylor was as general of our forces. It's mm -hmm. very hard to get that out there because it's very hard to really get out what Saddam Hussein actually had done on 9-11. He was one of the malefactors in 9-11 along with Al-Qaeda. Uh, but uh, once the story is out there in the popular imagination, um, it's very hard to undo it. It's very, very hard to, um, uh, to reverse these things. So yes, the truth is coming out for those who want to see it, but that's what makes sort of a strange uh, sense because the smartest people, the most aware, critically thinking, intelligent people know the truth. <laughs> but how do you get that out? It is a very difficult fight against the tide. Well, it is, especially with reference to the Vietnam War, for example, the image that's seared in everyone's memory is the helicopter with the people taking off from the American embassy in Saigon and the whole notion that we lost that war and that we then we had movies like uh, Coming Home and Apocalypse Now and that just kind of perpetuated that narrative. And you had the hagiographies of Woodward and Bernstein, the recent movie, The Post, uh, which also trumped up the Washington Post. It was a puff piece that <laughs> Amazon, it was it's surprising that Amazon came out with a, a, a piece puffing up the Washington Post. They couldn't possibly be owned by the same person. And it well, is hard to break be, huh? through that noise. Uh, That's right. But, the book is Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. You've also written another book, The Mysteries of Watergate. I highly recommend both. It's the Christmas book buying season. I'd refer people to Amazon to pick up both of those great books. Well, it's great, Tim. Just a little story. Of course, Amazon owns the Post. Jeff Bezos owns the right. Post. Yeah. And so even though my book is on Amazon to, to, to sell at one point, and I don't have a lot of money to uh, feel like spending a lot of money publicizing this, but, uh, you know, one of my friends suggested I buy a thousand bucks worth of ads on Amazon. And I said, okay, why don't we do that? And let's see what happens. And uh, when I did, the Amazon, Amazon would not take our ad money because they said the title was too controversial. So... 
<laughs> Imagine that. Imagine so I'm not that. Even able to sell my book on on Amazon with ads, and that just shows you it's the power of the press. That's all it is. It's the power of the press, and now the media, the high tech media. Uh, but you can bet your boots that if I wrote a book exposing Trump, that thing would be all over the place. I was just going to say, John, I can get you a massive wealth. All you got to do is change the title of the book to How Donald Trump Was Behind Watergate. And all of a sudden, it's going to be the number one book in the universe. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. How Donald Trump Caused Watergate. Oh, no, it'll be a big seller. Yeah. And of course, it'll be all completely factual, right? Exactly. Exactly. I could do it. I just, uh, you know, as a lawyer, I know how to manipulate. I just don't like to do so. It's uh, yeah. There's that know, little. But, it's that pesky integrity again, John. No, no. Let me tell you. If you read Postgate, you'll see how rattled the Post got when I started talking about these things because I was dealing with them un mm -hmm. uh, way back when when I represented Mark Felt and when I started talking about this stuff that I uncovered in my research. Boy. I got some reactions from the people I was dealing with, and they knew they have been consciously covering this up for fifty years. That's the sure. That's the long and short of it is, and they're and and they were so afraid of it. And you know, the fact is, they understand that as long as they keep their mouth shut, don't do much. Yeah, you know, I'll get a minority people out there thinking they're terrible, but it's people who already think the post is terrible anyway. Quickly, we've got a couple minutes left. It used to be in Washington that getting invited to Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham's Georgetown townhouse for a dinner party was the apex of Washington social life, such as it is. And has that changed with her passing? Are those cocktail parties in Georgetown still the reason so many Republicans bow and scrape to Democrats? Yes, as part of it. But what happens is Washington, D.C. is such an overwhelmingly liberal town because the whole deep state, the deep state has expanded so much since I was back in Washington as an intern walk, working for Mr. Ruckelhaus in the Justice Department. Um, it has expanded so massively and every civil servant just about is a Democrat. And then if you want things done if you want to get lucre and money for your clients it's much easier to get that from democratic people who like to spend money than otherwise so the whole town depends upon democrats if you're going to go into an agency to get something for your client like say epa and you want an exemption from pesticides you better have some democratic connections uh so I think the whole democratic power structure is still controlling things. Now, I'm not sure who's in charge of which cocktail parties anymore. When I think Washington was a little smaller then, and mm -hmm. Catherine Graham's parties were a little bit more uh, creme de la creme. I don't know if that, that particular structure is out there, but the structure of in-group democratic people is huge today uh, and i'd say it's more lobbyists on k street and law firms which have got by the way the law firms have grown up so much in washington dc because of all the stuff that flows through washington dc so i would look they have and i'd like to have you back john to talk about the deep state and exactly how washington has transformed in the last 50 years 
The book is Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. Thank you, John O'Connor. That's it for tonight's Reckoning on TNT Radio. Stay tuned for the Havorier Morit Show. I'm Timothy Shea. Until next time, God bless you. God bless these United States. Keep fighting the good fight.